It's New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kierset, nhtalkradio.com to get the back episodes of the show and follow WKXL on all your favorite podcasting platforms. We also get episodes of Kale and Company as well as Feast in the Future and the other programming we have here at the station. Excited to be joined this week by Ethan DeWitt, reporter over at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Welcome back. Glad to be back. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. Let's start off with an article that is forthcoming, probably the day that this uh, episode is going out. Talks about rent control in New Hampshire, which is shocking and uh, interesting. Yeah, so this is a bill by Democratic Representative Ellen Reed of Newmarket, um, and it would basically allow towns and cities to set rent controls. Uh, It's enabling legislation, meaning that there's nothing that forces towns and cities to do anything, but it would allow the towns and cities to pass bylaws. uh, And there's a number of areas that they can already regulate, and this would add two more areas. One would be to cap the amount that certain landlords could increase rents and that could, that cap could be at any level that the town or city chose and the other would be to require a certain notice period before a landlord raises rents on a tenant right now in new hampshire statute that is 30 days you need 30 days um in order to uh have your rents increased but this could allow a town to make it four months five months six months uh, there's no limit and so right now the towns are not uh, we're not a home rule state meaning that the towns don't don't get to do anything unless it is explicitly laid out for them in new hampshire statute and there are you know some states that if it isn't clearly laid out Uh, what they can and can't do, then they can do it, but not here. So you need to pass a bill in order to allow this. So the sponsor is arguing that this would allow towns to uh, respond to rent um, crises. And there are certain circumstances in each town where she argues that a town might want to implement these on a temporary basis if there's concern about people getting priced out. Obviously, rental vacancies are at uh, astonishingly low um, numbers right now. So that's the sponsor's argument, uh, but the opponents of the bill, who include the Realtors Association, argue that it's actually going to make the housing crisis worse because it's going to uh, kind of discourage development and uh, kind of lead to fewer rental properties from being created in the first place. So it's a really interesting debate, and we'll just see how, how it goes. Yeah, it was the same before we started. Kind of cold day in hell before it ever gets through, considering the uh, Republicans control the House and the governor's office, and those would be required in order to make this happen. And I, I mean, my, my my free market brain goes, um, n- no way. Please don't make this happen whatsoever. But on the other side, the consumer protection side is definitely important, especially as we've seen with inflation being so catastrophic this last year and rents increasing so extreme over the last five to ten years in the state it, it makes sense from from that perspective like it's yeah i should note that the sponsor herself uh said she isn't expecting many towns to take uh, th- this offer up if you know if the, if the bill were to pass into law to take the opportunity to pass these rental regulations um and a big reason for that is that the self-interest that a lot of select boards have and city councils have is is primarily to get revenue in order to keep their operations and the revenue comes from property taxes and property taxes are affected by how valuable the properties are and if there are rent caps or even if there were uh you know ordinances 
that would be allowed under this bill that would allow you to delay would require you to delay before you could raise your rents. That might be a disincentive for certain landlords or certain developers or certain investors who might want to buy a, an apartment building. Um, and that disincentive could then keep the value of the property lower, which might lead to lower property taxes. So the sponsor of the bill was interesting when she testified. She said, I understand the economics of this and I don't I'm not expecting there to be suddenly a rash of uh you know rental controls that would that would happen. But she said that you know this would allow the towns to do something that might be less extreme but might be more appropriate for a short period of time. And one lawmaker argued or asked why the bill doesn't uh, allow the matter to go to voters. It's it's done. It's it's through the bylaw process, which um, does not need you know a warrant article at town meeting. Her argument was that that would allow the towns to be even more nimble. Um, you know, a select board could vote for it, and then uh, you know at their next meeting, uh, vote to undo it uh, if they thought a crisis was over. But of course, that does raise you know some concerns from some, and and I think that we'll see that as this bill goes that there isn't enough input directly from you know residents themselves. Well, an so issue if it if it goes to a public vote, I mean, good luck getting it back off the books because you got to each jurisdiction has their own laws with how many people need to vote before things get through. It's going to be a disaster and it can very likely end up screwing over a real estate market because they just can't get the votes together to make it happen. Yeah, but I, I think it is an interesting kind of piece, not something that we've seen, I think, in New Hampshire before, but it's an interesting piece of legislation to come out of what is truly a rental crisis. Uh, and the argument of the sponsor is that there are people who are priced out of their towns and even their whole regions, especially on the seacoast, and then have to find other work or even leave the state. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a debate over whether this is the way to uh, kind of um, create more rental opportunities, but it's certainly part of the conversation this year. All right, let's move over to retirement. There's been some discussions around uh, making cities and towns, making uh, a permanent addition that the state would be contributing to the public retirement fund. Can you explain this? As a state employee now, I should I should say at the outset of this, it immediately rose, perked my ears up going, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, so um, it's helpful to just lay out the history here. So New Hampshire's retirement system, as we know it, our pension, uh, it, it it got it, its modern incarnation in 1967 when it uh, when the state um, merged together four different pension plans into one big one. And so this covers uh, your te- teachers, police, firefighters, and state and municipal employees. And so it's a lot of people, uh, and by consolidating in the 60s, the argument was, well, we can maximize investments, we can um, kind of get a lot more, grow grow the, the fund a lot more and, and give people more benefits. Um, but one of the things that the state did at the time to try to incentivize all of the towns and cities to join in was to, um, the, to pledge, the state pledge that it would um, put in 35% of the employer contributions. This would be the contribution that that the towns and cities would have to make on behalf of their own employees. And that's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, you know, it does alleviate a lot of the costs. So, you know, the employees themselves are paying some of it out of their salaries, but so is their employer. 
uh, and some of it's coming from the investment. So that happened in 1967. And then we had a recession in 2009 and a lot of things changed with the pension fund. Um, and one thing that lawmakers did is they suspended the 35% state contribution. It went down to 25% and then it was eliminated um, as of, I believe, 2013. So for the past 10 years, they never actually reinstated it. It was it was kind of said to be a uh, recession uh, move that was to help the state shore up, you know, the the general fund that was um, in dire straits, but it hasn't been restored. And so there's been efforts over the years to try to restore it, but it's not very easy to for lawmakers to suddenly desire to commit spending so much every year and bring that back. So what happened last year is um, against all odds, uh, a an effort to not restore it to 35%, the state's contribution, but to restore it to 7.5%, so much more modest, um, passed as a one-off. Uh, it originally came out as, let's make this permanently 7.5%, and then the Senate changed it to, to one-off 7.5%. And so this year that's back, and it's back as a permanent uh, uh, effort, and we are in a budget year. And so it's a lot easier to kind of pass that than in an off budget year and to put it into the budget. We also happen to have a lot in the general fund. So there's there's some bipartisanship behind this. Uh, there's also opposition. Um, and it's just an interesting kind of proposal. And the cities and towns, interesting enough, you know, 10 years ago, they were getting 35% of their contributions paid for. You'd think they'd be wanting that again. But I think given the way the politics on this have shifted, um, what I'm struck by is that they are happy with the 7.5% because it's better than nothing, they say. And they are pushing for this, make this permanent 7.5%. So cities and towns are happy with it. On the other side of the spectrum, you have some Republicans who uh, believe sort of on principle that this is not something that the state should be doing, that the state should not be subsidizing essentially the pension plans of both the state employees, but also of municipal employees. And the argument I heard from one representative, Carol McGuire, who's the, uh, the chairman of, of the committee who's looking at this, is that um, if the state, if, if a town or a city, you know, doubles its police force or doubles its fire department, then the state is suddenly on the hook and lawmakers are on the hook to kind of contribute more proportionally when they didn't really have a say in the city doing that. So that's the argument on, uh, against uh, making this permanent. But the argument in favor of it from cities and towns is that it will lower property taxes because a lot of money um, goes into the um, into paying for um, the pensions. Uh, and, and going into the pension system from cities and towns. So it's an interesting thing that I wouldn't have expected to see bipartisanship, but I think that there's a lot of attention being paid this session on the retirement system and particularly on the $5.8 billion hole that the state is still trying to fill that happened over the course of about 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I, I mean, there's it, it's there's politics involved there's economics involved it's a very messy situation i mean at a at a certain point i mean the the I, i'd imagine the part of the reason why they like it to just try and get it to stay at the seven and a half percent is consistency purposes that any town that needs to go redo their budget and involves any mass voting and whatsoever it, it could be really messy if there's inconsistency from year to year so if they lock it down at that it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we keep we keep talking about the different voting <laughs> mechanisms and the impacts of that happening. I mean, they probably really appreciate it. And then down the road, they plan on a certain level, and it ends up 
being taken away. Say they do get up to the 35%, and then it jumps back down to zero or seven and a half. I mean, that could be really catastrophic for a very small town, even just that small amount of money, I bet. Yeah, and one of the things that was interesting, so a couple of years ago, the legislature passed a cost of living adjustment, and uh, I believe it was about um, $500 um, extra to uh, a lot of people who were benefiting from the retirement system. But because the state doesn't contribute anything and hasn't since 2013, all what happened is the state, you know, lawmakers passed a requirement that the retirement system pay out more. But the people, the 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 ones who had to uh, pay for that were the cities and towns. So kind of, I mentioned the argument that we've heard from some that um, the state should not be responsible for the decisions that cities and towns make with their workforce. Cities and towns argue, well, the the state is making decisions over how much uh, retirees should be paid out and not contributing anything to that uh, amount once it does, you know pass these cost of living adjustments. So it's all very nuanced uh, over yeah. kind of who should really be uh, like sharing more of the financial load here. But what is not in, in debate is the fact that pensions are getting much more expensive. The amount that that um, cities and towns have to pay in partly as a matter of inflation uh, is going up. And so it, it definitely is hurting those who do have to pay into it more and more every year. And it's taking up a bigger proportion of their budgets. I'd imagine the state would want more people paying into it so there's a larger pot of money over decades that gets built up into it and is invested. I mean, seeing the other side of it a bit, I mean, you, you want you, – it's always easier to use a, use a carrot than a stick to, uh, to, to get people to, to invest into a retirement system they want to keep solvent. And the best way to do that is have a much larger amount of people that are investing into it every year. Because you got to figure a lot of people are never going ca- to cash on it necessarily. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to move on to other jobs. They are um, – maybe they, they pass away during their, their tenure while they're, they're uh, in that position. And that would mean that this money is just there and invested and it's unlikely most people would necessarily go back to figure out what – they should do with that money. And at that point, the state's already received the interest on it. Yeah. So, um, right. And and it's just, this is an endlessly compl- complex system. Um, there's, there's also the investment returns that, uh, you know, there, there is the retirement system, uh, you know, high contracts out um, to invest the money and try to grow it. Um, and then, you know, there's been all sorts of, there's that $5.8 billion hole that I mentioned earlier, which was a very complicated why that exists, but it is something that is taking up a large amount of what cities and towns have to pay. I was surprised to learn that 70% of what cities and towns pay into the retirement system is just going to paying off that debt, which was accumulated in the 90s over time. It started in the 90s, and there was a complicated series of decisions that lawmakers made um, partly out of result, result of a recession back then. There was a recession in 1991. So every time there's a recession, there seems to be the, the, the pension system seems to be hit. I should say, though, that compared to other states, uh, New Hampshire's pension retirement system is in much better shape in terms of the liability that the, that the state has taken on. Better than the post office, at least. So that's fortunate. That means when right. I hopefully, if I stick around the new gig, hopefully I have a good pension still. So let's, let's not ruin that, guys, over at the State House. All right, moving over the last five minutes here to some updates regarding the banned concepts lawsuit is being allowed to proceed per the U.S. District Court. Yeah, so the this is a lawsuit that's been brought by state teachers unions and the ACLU. Um, the, the 
so-called banned concept, divisive concept, it's sometimes called the freedom from discrimination law. Everybody has a different word for it. Um, it essentially um, bars teachers and state employees from teaching a number of concepts, um, including that you know, one person of a of one class or race or um, you know any protected characteristic under anti-discrimination law is superior to another, that somebody can be inherently oppressive of another. Um, and it was sort of tied into the debate over the critical race theory in schools. That's sort of how it's been portrayed. Um, now that it's in law, there are consequences for teachers that break it, um, that violate it. And uh, they they can face professional consequences um, through uh, the Department of Education. They can have cert certification issues. They And there's a process by which they're Claims that are filed by parents or um, you know on behalf of students about their instruction can can proceed, and that's what this lawsuit's about. The lawsuit is um, the teachers' unions claiming that this law is too vague to follow, and as a result, because there are severe um, professional consequences potentially that could follow them not not adhering to it, or uh, that that they have started to self-censor. That's the argument that they've made. And they've made an argument that it violates the 14th Amendment, which has a vagueness. Uh, it, it, there's a there's a challenge you can make through the 14th Amendment on if a statute is too vague in order to actually be uh, interpreted and applied fairly. They're making that argument. They're also making an argument about the First Amendment, that their First Amendment rights to, to you know conduct classes how they wish are being infringed so the judge uh this is just a a, a a a decision on whether the lawsuit can go ahead he agreed the lawsuit can go ahead this is in the u.s district court in concord um so we haven't seen discovery we have not seen the actual you know oral arguments for the real trial here and the real the real um procedure but the judge did seem sympathetic to a lot of the plaintiffs arguments a little skeptical of some of them one of the arguments he was skeptical of is that the first amendment applies to teachers because uh there's some recent case law that um goes against that notion and kind of upholds the idea that public employees do not have free speech in the sense that that citizens do yeah. in the course of their jobs that they that you know a teacher in a curriculum um, but he did open he was open to the idea that they have free speech for extracurricular speech and teachers say that the divisive concepts law is Im impeding them the judge was more sympathetic to the plaintiffs that there that there is vagueness in the law and that the vagueness is uh adversely affecting teachers and how they teach but again this is a very early order this is just his order of saying you know I will allow this to proceed or I won't. And so we'll see what actually happens. When it gets as much to... as they narrow it down as possible is going to make the actual court proceedings a lot more efficient. Because if you're throwing in First Amendment and the 14th Amendment in the same suit, it's going to be a disaster because they, they cover very different things. And if you're dumping the First Amendment into it, you're dealing with chilling effect and such, and they're – their employees. You can only say what your employer says you can say when you're on the job. Let's keep that in mind. I don't care what your job is. Teachers are not exempt from that just because they're teachers. And, but the vagueness one, is, I've always said, is is going to be problematic with this because the the Department of Education hasn't really offered to, enough specificity in what they expect or don't expect of teachers. And I think that's been pretty consistent with both sides of the aisle, with um, except for the people that are in the Education Committee, um, yeah. that, that there's a problem there. Yeah, and uh, really quickly, um, just to get in, this is a legal concept I, I've had to Google every time. It's called the, the Sienta requirement. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But essentially, it's the requirement that you, you, that 
somebody must knowingly violate some um, prohibition against them in order for it to be a, pro a violation. Uh, this law doesn't have that. And that's a, another argument the judge has made that plaintiffs have made and the judge has made that um, goes to the law's vagueness. Um, the judge was saying that if the law did have something that said the teacher must knowingly be teaching these concepts, um, then it would be much less vague. But because a teacher could be accidentally uh, teaching, uh, framing a lesson in a way you know, theoretically, they could accidentally do that. Um, the judge is saying that adds to the plaintiff's vagueness argument. So we'll see how that goes. Ethan DeWitt over at the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. New Hampshire Headlines. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted, nhtalkradio.com to get more from me. We'll